Like many of you, I'm curious about several topics, and what better way to learn than to speak directly with the people who have the answers that you're looking for? My name is Costa. Welcome to Founder Views. That's what this channel is all about. You're going to hear me pick the brains of thought leaders, CEOs, politicians, and business experts about subjects that I'm thinking about or working on at any given time. From economics, business, real estate investing, Bitcoin, lifestyle, politics, and much, much more. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right, Julian, very excited to uh, chat with you. Uh, I just wanted to give a quick like background. So we, how we connected, randomly saw one of your videos on Twitter about uh, the modern modern monetary theory. And, and that's just like a topic that I've been absorbing myself in a lot recently. So good timing when I saw it. Uh, quality was amazing. The messaging was on point. So I was like, I got to message this guy, get him on my podcast and, and have a chat. And, and so here we are. So... Uh, thank you for, for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Costa. Uh, I, I usually don't like to ask like, you know, about the background and give a quick background on my podcast because I don't know why, but I feel like in your case, uh, it'd be helpful uh, if, if, I, if I just know a little bit about uh, your story, your background. All right. Where to start? Um, I am a filmmaker by trade. So I've been making movies since I was a little kid, uh, claymations, even did some like animation and video games back in the day. And so I've always just really liked uh, visuals as a medium. And that's carried me through different angles of that. At first, you know, early on, I wanted to go into the feature film industry, uh, you know, made some short films. Uh, in 2017 or so, when I graduated from university uh, with a film degree, I ended up starting my own production company called Kinetic Cuts. And it's still running today. We do, you know, commercials, corporate videos and stuff. But all of that and the journey of, you know, getting into Bitcoin, I, I won't I won't give my whole orange pill story unless you want that. Uh, but obviously, when you find out about Bitcoin, you make some money. It changes, I guess, some of the opportunities that you have as, a, you know, as a freedom loving individual. And so I decided I'm going to put that energy into hopefully educating some more people about this. And spending more time myself actually getting to sit down and read these books and see what is going on behind the scenes in the world of money. And uh, I guess the backdrop of how all civilizations kind of rise and fall and the correlation in monetary history to those events. So, yeah, yeah I mean, the, the short and skinny of it is basically I went down the rabbit hole. I got orange pilled. And now I'm trying to take all the stuff I've learned and put it to the same format that I wish I saw when I was on my orange pill journey, we have all these great podcast books and all this stuff. And I kind of want to transmute that stuff into 60 second lessons and do some more, you know, street stuff and documentaries, travel to other countries and just show it off in a lot more of a dynamic way. Um, you know, as opposed to kind of the straight and clean format. Yeah. Love it. I, I knew there was a reason why we connected and there's a lot of parallels to, uh, to what you're doing and, and what I'm doing as well. Um, just like I feel like the more you you get down the rabbit hole and learn about Bitcoin, like how you think about Bitcoin evolves and changes, and the more you yeah. learn about money and the monetary system, like it it really pulls you even more. Um, and so so going back to that video that I saw on Twitter uh, that you made about uh, amazing videos, by the way, I gotta say, great job Thanks, on man. those T- to pack sure. that into sixty seconds. That that's impressive, but um. So money and banking, right? These are 
I think just in general, very complicated subjects for most people. And it's probably by design, of course. But I think I think more people are starting to see cracks in the system, right? Like, especially right now with inflation, prices are crazy. People can't afford things like debt, which is totally unsustainable. So you higher taxes. Like, these are all things that people like really feel like objectively right now. So you may be starting to see some cracks. So, so I think understanding the history and functions of the monetary system just will serve as a great foundation for just getting clarity of how flawed and, and corrupt this system is. So I think that more people that can understand that um, is, is a good thing. I think that's like the foundation. So what are your thoughts on on just that? as a whole. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that, you know, most people don't understand is exactly the interaction between uh, the issuance of money and the banking system. I think a lot of people, you know, I've talked to so many people on the street, and they don't know what the term fiat means. People have this vague understanding that their money isn't really backed by a commodity. Although I have spoken to some people who still think that, you know, the Canadian or the US dollar is backed by gold. But the reality is, you know, in the last 70 years, uh, we have a money, we've returned to a monetary standard, or maybe we've created a new one, I guess, that is not backed by a hard commodity. But beyond that, we've created a monetary system that is dependent on banking in a way that we haven't really had in, in modern history. The banks hold so many of the treasury notes that the, uh, the Federal Reserve is exchanging for, you know, quantitative easing and tightening programs. And so they are linked at the hip in a way that we haven't really had before private banking and, you know, public banking, so-called. And people really don't understand that system that if the private banks fail, it takes down everything with it because we have this big reliance on these credit facilities and they're kind of the purveyors of all that. And so, you know, people just think the dollar is going to continue going on, you know, as long as it does, they don't realize that we've created all these dependencies on, on, these private entities that don't always have our best interests and have in fact, um, you know, been sued multiple billions for corruption, for money laundering and, and for poor accounting, but at the same time are critical in keeping the stability of the, of the so-called dollar. So I'm going off a little bit off subject here, but I think what people don't miss and the stat I really love to bring up is if you look at the, uh, the GDP of, uh, the US. And if you look at the different sectors of the S&P 500, financial services as a sector of the economy skyrocketed after uh, the 1970s when we moved to a fiat standard. Banks and private banks and their credit creation became so much more important to the general economy. They became such a large part of it, in fact, that at some point in the 90s, financial services were the largest part of the, uh, the public markets. So and, you know, they, they've come down now. We saw some of the consequences of that in 2008, the contagion, how everything is kind of interlinked. But, um, you know, people don't realize now that basically one of these dominoes falls, they can bring down the whole system. And that's a really bad way to set up a monetary system. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, I think if you even if you study history, past economies, um, you know, the rise and fall of economies there's similarities right and, and i think we're mm -hmm. we're just literally in the path of of something that's unsustainable and even then a modern monetary theory right like this is mm -hmm. this is truly a theory that is being played out before our eyes people pulling the strings like don't really know what's what's going to happen if you look at quotes from um you know canadian we're both in canada so canadian uh, central bank had 
from like 24 months ago, 18 months ago, saying like interest rates are going to remain low, you know, all this stuff. And, and compared to today, the rhetoric to today, like it's clear that even the people at the head don't really know what's happening and they're playing out this theory in real time. So it, it's just very interesting to observe. It, it's, it seems so silly. Like, you know, the propositions are like, we, we understand, I think everyone understands that we're going into debt, but I think a lot of people just think, well, we'll just tax more. We'll just figure out, out a way to extract more money from the real economy. And that way we can pay for everything. And I saw this interesting thing I retweeted the other day, which was that Biden was looking at putting like a one or two or 3% wealth tax on billionaires in the U S and they figured the math on that would essentially be, you know, maybe they get an extra, you know, $50 billion per year. And then it was something like, well, they just sent that much in weapons to the Ukraine, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, in like a month or something. So it's like, that's not, that's not going to make a difference. Like the, the majority of the capital that is funding everything that we get is through credit facilities. It is not coming from tax revenue. Yeah. And this idea of modern monetary theory, it's, it's, actually not really consensus among everyone in Washington, but it sort of is, right? It's this idea that, you know, we're not actually counting every single dollar tax revenue we get. And I think if the U.S. government really cared about all the tax revenue they get, they'd, uh, you know, they, they'd update their tax system by now to, to track a little bit better. Instead, they've poured a bunch of money into the IRS. That's their version of virtue signaling how much they need tax revenue from people. But you know, in Canada, we don't even do it as, as hardcore. Like you can see how much we've excused from businesses that we gave during the pandemic. Almost every business in Canada was eligible for a $60,000 loan from the government uh, during the pandemic. But 20,000 of that was uh, basically if you pay that back in two years, uh, the, the, if you pay back 40,000 to 60,000, then you're good. So the government essentially was just giving out $20,000 worth of uh, you know, free money to businesses with no strings attached. I don't think that was a necessary requirement, but they did it because I, I really think that they don't really look at that as something that they need to recoup because again, end of the day, they can just print it. Yeah, right? exactly. So. Exactly. So you mentioned something interesting. Most people, which I agree, don't even know what, what fiat is. So yeah. w when you have these conversations, like, like how do you explain what fiat is how do you explain what fiat is <laughs> you're having a conversation um, with someone and like you know saying like hey we're in the, a fiat system like for the average person like what the hell are you talking about well i i go back to like a very basic principle and the thing is is like people who run this system they don't ever call it fiat money and they don't call it that for a reason because fiat literally means rule by decree you cannot have, um, you know, a great fiat money if you don't have a monopoly on it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, if people have alternatives, they won't use your money by decree. So that's essentially what fiat is. It's a monetary system that is forced upon us. Um, and then in terms of, you know, this idea of, you know, is money ever backed by anything? Should we even use that word? You know, do we back currency? Um I think I think the the best way to explain fiat money is it's just it's a it's a debt based system um, where we need to perpetually borrow to keep the velocity of money moving, or else uh, it doesn't it doesn't really function. And that's why on every facet in life, and this is my very simplified explanation of it, in every facet of life, you are being constantly encouraged to borrow and spend, mm -hmm. even if you don't need to, right? And if that train ever slows down, uh, we get deflationary collapse. And that's kind of the consensus among everyone is that we have to have some inflation. If we don't, 
it collapses. And if we have to have some inflation, we have to have constant borrowing and constant spending, even when, you know, you and I might not even need to do that. So, yeah, so much I want to unpack there. And so have you heard of uh, Triffin's Dilemma? So I think so, but maybe you, you can probably have it for sure. Like, yeah. I'll refresh. So 1960s uh, famous economist named Robert Triffin, he exposed uh, a fundamental problem with the international monetary system. So basically ever since the U.S. Uh, got off the gold standard, they started running deficits, meaning, you know, they import more from other countries compared to what they export, uh, which was all part of the deal in, in the making of the dollar reserve currency. So the dilemma, Triffin's dilemma is this. So on one hand, if the U.S. stopped running these balance of payments deficits, other countries around the world would lose their largest source of reserves and income. And that would result in massive liquidity shortages around the world, bring the world economy spiraling down. Right. And but on the other hand, if these deficits continue, which they are, the U.S. will continue fueling economic growth around the world. But what that does is slowly erode confidence in the U.S. dollar uh, as they pile on more deficits, more debt. And that could lead to the U.S. dollar no longer being accepted as the world reserve currency. Uh, which leads to a lot of turmoil and financial instability domestically and all that. And I feel like that's, that's literally playing out right now that this, this whole dilemma yeah. and that paradox. So any thoughts with that and what's going on? Well, yeah, like how you just described it, there's the current paradox, which is I think there are more people than ever trying to escape the U S dollar into something else. Yet at the same time, there's more people that hold it than ever right? Yeah, it's 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 like a it's a two way thing. It's like the people in first world countries are constantly trying to escape it. And the governments motivate them to right like we have all we all have 401ks like this is just a tacit roundabout way of saying like, well, you can't really save your life in, in the currency, you know, have an investment fund buy spy every financial advisor tells you that they don't tell you to buy these investments to escape the the like the diminishing purchasing power of the dollar they tell you the opposite they say oh it's going to grow your purchasing power they don't tell you that well that's because the dollar itself is losing it on the other end of it um you know foreign governments that are much more susceptible to corruption than you know some of the western ones some of these places without democracies are always going to have the most compromised currencies and that's that's been pretty consistent across the last hundred years the governments with the least confidence in their um, or the, the the governments that have the least amount of confidence from their populace usually have some correlation as some of the worst currencies on earth as well you know people aren't stoked with the government of zimbabwe or venezuela or argentina uh, but they kind of place themselves in those positions of power through different laws and uh, even though nobody is really satisfied they stay and the currency can the currencies continue to bleed out so it creates this rush of people from other places into the U.S. dollar combined with, you know, us trying to leave it into other assets. The, the challenge with leaving the U.S. dollar is that, you know, there's no consensus on the best place to go. Every single investment has its, you know, trade-offs um, and, and benefits. You know, it seems yeah. real estate has absorbed a massive part of it, public markets, private equity. Bitcoin, but there's no consensus on what really is the best. It really depends on like, you know, are you taking a five-year snippet, a 10-year snippet, a 20-year snippet? No one really knows. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a dilemma that we're in 
for sure. I mean, at the same time, the the thing that I the thing that I, I grapple with is that, and, and I've I've felt this more traveling is that I've been to a lot of places with failing currencies, uh, places with a lot of inflation, places with corrupt governments, places where people really don't have faith in the political system around them, but the societies still work. Mm. And I'll give you an example. Like you can go to some of these countries in, in Latin America with really high crime rates compared to what we have places that, you know, by some metrics have quite severe poverty. People are making one or $2 a day. Um, but you will not hear the same type of complaining about the system uh, like we do up here when we have much higher living standards. And so sometimes that makes me think it's not necessarily about the money itself, the political system, but it's really about what money buys and what people, uh, I guess, you know, what, what's important to people in the end of the day. And I, I think it goes a lot more than, uh, it goes a lot further than purchasing power sometimes. It's about your ability to produce things that have value. And so I always find that, you know, no matter how terrible our monetary system is, people always find a way to rebuild out of these things. And so as people who educate on these topics, we have to be careful about, you know, projecting doom and gloom and, you know, 10 year and 20 year recessions and always complaining about uh, the declining quality of life, because at the end of the day, our individual decisions make a much bigger impact on that than I think governments and their monetary systems do. Um, yeah. Not to say that they don't matter, but you know you can live a pretty fruitful life if you know what you're doing without interacting at all with the monetary system. Totally, it's a weird totally one. Totally agree. I can get into that. that that's <laughs> a very uh, interesting, great perspective, which I agree with. Right, like just having experience going to these places with poverty. But but you're right. Like these these societies still exist. People are still you know doing what they have to do. Which so that, that that's very interesting. Um, Going back to what you were saying earlier, though, don't don't you find it funny when like there's economic uncertainty and, and like the headlines you read are, you know, people like safe haven, people going into the U.S. dollar as like, you mm -hmm. know, a safe. I always find that like just kind of ironic, right? How that's like, how is it a safe haven asset? Like I always that's something I grapple with. I mean, I mean, what is a safe haven, right? Like it's it's. To me, I, I understand, I know, I, I understand what you're saying. Like, it's kind of ironic that people look at this thing that's just bleeding out as a safe haven, but there is a level of certainty that, you know, I can wake up tomorrow and purchase the same amount of goods. Right. Uh, although this year has been pretty weird going to the grocery store and seeing like 10% rises between trips on certain things. Um, but I mean, what other, what other option do you have? Right. Like, I think for most people, again, the reason that we use these terms safe haven is because we're looking at it relative to our just standard living situations. You know, we can talk about investments in Bitcoin and all this stuff day in and day out. But, you know, I don't know if you've you've gone on a Bitcoin standard, but, you know, seeing your your uh, your net worth fluctuate like that um, and the ability to purchase goods changing from a day-to-day -day basis when you actually need to unlock that capital to purchase things necessary for survival, it doesn't quite feel like a safe haven, right? Yeah. And so the dollar is going to be the best medium for that. Maybe you could argue that it's some sort of food as well that could be called a, a safe haven. But, you know, for the intermittent person and, and for the person that's just looking at, like, if I need to survive tomorrow, what's going to be the most liquid thing that I can exchange yeah, for goods? Yeah, totally agree. It's the U.S. dollar. From right? that perspective, you're right. But if yeah, you... but no, I mean, from a, like, people, I think, 
look at the word safe haven and they think place where I can uh, preserve the value of my wealth. And I think that, you know, the USR does not fit that definition, but it, it serves as a safe haven as like a safe harbor between, um, you know, monetary uh, purchasing power and goods on a relative day-to-day basis. Yeah, on a very short-term basis. But if you yeah. now extrapolate that out to, you know, five, 10 years, like that, that safe haven asset is depreciating before your eyes, yeah. right? So from that perspective, now, it's not too safe. Where this conversation gets really interesting is, and we can dive into this a little bit, is is how do we di- how do we look at the dollars a safe haven once cash is eliminated from the system, right? Because we all know that money has these properties: fungibility, um, you know, scarceness, etc. Right? Um, fungibility becomes something that becomes extremely compromised under a central bank digital currency standard because essentially the powers that be, um, and we live in a world where half the world hates the other side, can decide whether or not you're able to spend something on something you want. And so I really think when we move to a standard where the fungibility gets questioned of the dollar itself and our ability to spend it, and when it doesn't just impact the fringe minorities, but when it starts impacting you know, millions and, and massive swaths of population, that I think is the turning point for when people start to understand and appreciate an open monetary standard. I think it's going to take something pretty severe for people to understand, you know, we either need to go to Bitcoin or we need to just get rid of these CBDCs because they're compromising our ability to use money for survival. Yeah, to me, the whole CBDCs is probably the most, the scariest thing that I see, um, in, in front of us as a society, like, it, you know, if that's, if that comes reality, I mean, to me that, you know, there, there's no more freedom at that point. And that's one of the first thing you said, right. As a, as someone who loves freedom, turn to Bitcoin here. So why, why do a lot of people think Bitcoin could be that solution to a lot of the problems that we've spoken about in this existing monetary system. Why do people think that Bitcoin could be a solution? Um, I think you have to kind of go back to the history of Bitcoin and, and kind of why it was invented in the first place. And I think I, 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 I sometimes I question whether or not um, Satoshi had the technology ready and waited until the end of 2008 to release it. I kind of wonder, you know, we, we know that Bitcoin is a technology. It pulled from different versions of eCash that were created in like the 90s, right? But if that's the case, then like, why did it come out in 2009? Why didn't it come out in 2005, 2007? How long was he really working on it? And so I really like to pay attention to when Bitcoin was released, which was January 3rd, 2009. This is mere months after the uh, massive bailouts. We know in the Genesis block, because you can inscribe notes into the Bitcoin blockchain, the first ever mined block of Bitcoin says, you know, January 3rd, 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. So immediately from Bitcoin's conception, we understand that Satoshi saw the flaw in central banks and their ability to print currency and that the the standard of whatever digital currency he was going to make a peer-to-peer cryptocurrency of Bitcoin, basically, had to have an element of scarcity to it. And from the very beginning, the 21 million part of Bitcoin has just been so integral to people's understanding and adoption of it, this this fixed number. And I actually did a video the other day. I was trying to kind of figure out like why that number in, in particular, why not just like 100 million or like 10 million or whatever. And I know it's divisible, but like why 21? And 
basically uh, one of the theories that's been posited out there is that when Satoshi created Bitcoin, there was about $21 trillion in M1 money supply. So just $21 trillion worth of money and assets floating out there. And so, uh, you know, with 21 million, you can divide each Bitcoin into 100 million pieces. Uh, basically, each Satoshi could be worth about a dollar and kind of adequately replace that system and, and still be kind of like fungible, uh, you know, as as a dollar would. Yeah. Um, indivisible, sorry. Um, but why do people see Bitcoin as a way to, uh, to, to, I guess, protect themselves from the system? Is that kind of the question you asked? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think it's that it's the first time, obviously, ever we've been able to have a digital bearer asset, a asset on you know a public network that we can control the keys from, and we don't need to rely on a third party for, uh, for any reason. And it doesn't seem it seems like you know we're in the year twenty twenty three. It doesn't seem like that amazing of a concept because now we have like a billion other cryptocurrencies where you can sort of do the same thing. But really what makes Bitcoin special is all the things that are involved in its history. The anonymous creator, the openness of the network, the un, the absolute uncompromisability of Bitcoiners and Bitcoin miners to sway one way or another. And I really think that it takes a lot of time to convince people that a monetary system works. People like you and I were not having these conversations back in 2010 and 2011. Even the most devout Bitcoiners uh, were still you know, skeptical of this system. And you can go back and see all the people that Satoshi was taking the time to respond to, you know, saying like, oh, I don't know if this system can work, you know, divisibility, like 51% attacks seem pretty easy if someone just got a server farm. You know, Satoshi and, and all the early Bitcoiners had to go through all this stuff. And, and back then it was so easy, technically, for somebody with a lot of capital to compromise Bitcoin and just force the network to just infinitely fork. But everything kind of came together. And I spoke to Max Kaiser about this and he kind of had this, he has this theory that essentially around 2013, 2014, the Bitcoin network uh, kind of reached its singularity and became a, a fully independent being. And essentially at that point, um, that is kind of the, uh, the nexus where it sort of became unstoppable. There was enough hash rate, there was enough people supporting the network, enough of an understanding at large of what Bitcoin was that it basically couldn't be stopped with any amount of money or brute force or political power. And kind of looking back at Bitcoin history, I, I look at it kind of the same way. I think 2013, 2014 is when Bitcoin truly kind of became something basically unstoppable at any scale. And obviously today, I think if you wanted to launch a 51% attack, it would cost you about $100 million per day. So that's just not happening, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you're not really getting that far. You're only really messing up future transactions, reversing the blockchain. It's not, not happening at that rate. So um, I think that's really what has created in people's minds. And that's why we have you know Bitcoin maximalism and people who are devoutly into Bitcoin and none of the other shitcoins. I think that's where it all comes from is the resilience of Bitcoin over the years, the block size wars, um, all of the tests and trials that Bitcoin has gone through to prove that it can be a sound uh, monetary entity, to prove that no one can co-opt the code, to prove that uh, the, the scarcity is not negotiable, the divisibility, all these other factors of money are not negotiable. People didn't understand that at first because we look at code as something that's constantly changing and updating and, and progressing. And open source protocols are moving all the time in different directions. But Bitcoin had to have that first kind of few years to prove its resilience. 
And, uh, you know, we've kind of gotten past that point now. And I think because of those factors, people can confidently and safely say this thing is as hard as gold, if not harder. Yeah, great, great explanation. Would you consider yourself a Bitcoin maximalist? Um, I don't like the term Either Bitcoin maximalist. <laughs> like, like, here's what I question when people say Bitcoin maximalist. Does that mean that you just don't invest in shit coins or you don't invest in anything else? Right. Yeah. Because because to me, I don't really I don't really know what it is. To me, I've heard that the Bitcoin maximalist thing just means like screw all the other cryptos. Uh, Bitcoin is the only one that matters. But, you know, I look at things like equities and I look at things as like entrepreneurship and, and you know, owning land and, and property. And I look at all these things as like these are assets that over many different types of durations are superior to Bitcoin. Right. Um, in terms of how it benefits my life, maybe not to anyone, but it benefits you know my life in certain ways. And I'm going to invest in entrepreneurs, um, you know, just because Bitcoin's the hardest monetary standard has the best rate of return doesn't mean I'm not going to take a chance on an entrepreneur, um, many of which have actually outdone Bitcoin in the last 10 years. Right. So I don't look at myself as a maximalist from that lens. I don't really uh, see value in any of the other cryptocurrencies. I think most of them are just recreating the same systems that we have. Um, at the same time, I'd also say that I'm not one of those people, uh, that say the jury is out on whether or not blockchain can be useful for any other medium. I just haven't seen it. I've seen it go in the reverse path where people are using this technology just to centralize their power more. Um, but there's a lot of different things that people are doing even right now with, uh, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain and the immutability of just hosting data on a public ledger that I think could be useful for other applications. I just, I just don't really know how that functions. And I don't think it functions without proof of work um, at all. So it's just one of those things where like, I don't want to put my foot on it, uh, that, you know, blockchain is only for uh, this one true reserve currency. Um, but I have not seen any other example so far that uh, proves that it's good for anything else. Yeah. One of the things that I look at um, blockchains for as potentially useful, but again, not done for anything is voting. I think that there's a ton of problems uh, with our election systems and the transparency of it. I don't know if blockchain as a public ledger is the technology to fix that, but I think it would be nice to have voting done on a public ledger, have that kind of encrypted, have nodes that can verify the authenticity of votes. Maybe that doesn't look like a Bitcoin blockchain or something like that. But the idea of voting and having that in encrypted uh, energy and you know paying people to store that energy or to process future blocks, I think that could be interesting. But again, haven't seen it anywhere. Yeah. I agree. To me, that's a that's a great, useful, practical example how it could be used. Uh, have a feeling a lot of uh, people in power wouldn't want that for, for no, of course obvious not. reasons. But um, no, I mean we all know it's like Trudeau's big election promise, right? Was he was going to change the system, and yeah. then it's like as soon as he gets in, he's like, nope. Yeah, no. <laughs> it worked for me. Why would I mess it up? Yeah. So inflation, right? Um, there's this modern monetary theory, Keynesian philosophy, like you need inflation apparently, uh, to operate a, a, a functioning, growing system. Like, why, why do we need inflation, according to, uh, you know, the people pulling the strings, the central bankers? Why do we need it according to them? Yeah, or yeah, why do we yeah, need it according, according to, to them. I'm not saying we need it, but according to them. What's their argument for inflation? Why is it necessary? 
their argument for inflation is that without it, there isn't monetary velocity. It's just, it's, it's a really played out stupid argument that essentially money itself cannot function unless people are coerced by the rules of money to spend it at all times. Because otherwise, if there was no inflation and if there was deflation, people wouldn't spend anything on, on anything. And that's just, it's, it's stupid because it just shows people who don't understand history. Uh, you know, the U.S. basically had, I believe, no nominal inflation between like the 1800s and the 1900s on a CPI basis. You buy a can of soup, you know, beginning of the, the I guess, 19th century. Yeah, beginning of the 19th century, sell it in the 20th century for like the same amount. Uh, that's that's not inflation. The world progressed. It was different, right? We had a lot of deflation in the system in the industrial era, but the proof is in the pudding that essentially you don't need uh, inflation for people to, uh, to to function in an economy. You don't need inflation for an economy to uh, to grow on a relative basis. So their whole argument is essentially, well, if we don't have velocity of money, if we don't have this uh, rule in the system that it... Uh, loses some value every single year, then people just won't spend, yeah. uh, which is just crazy. People spend because they need to survive, uh, not because, you know, the rules are a certain way or not a certain way. Um, the reality of, of why we need inflation is because the government spends much more than they take in. And if there is not a system in place that makes it easier for them to pay back that debt, uh, then they default and that creates, uh, you know, basically the destruction of currency and it basically forfeits their power to somebody who is more fiscally responsible than they are. Uh, so they need to have inflation in this system that we have, because essentially if they don't, uh, the debt becomes harder and harder to pay off. Um, and in fact, the reason that they're so against deflation, probably the reason they make the arguments that they make is, is that if we had a deflationary system, and this is one of the things that, um, you know, I like to think about with Bitcoin is that if we live under a Bitcoin standard where things would arguably be deflationary, it makes borrowing money very, very risky. It makes it very, very challenging to live outside your means because your debt just becomes so difficult to pay off. Interest rate or no interest rate, the money becomes more scarce over time. So acquiring it um, as the cost of goods and revenue and, and wages trend lower because the purchasing power is maintaining itself or increasing despite the unit, uh, you know, not needing as much of it, it just makes any debt acquired in the past uh, much more expensive to pay off in the future. So they don't want a system like that either, yeah. Um, basically. Yeah. So something I've been um, just talking about, thinking about recently is, like you said, the, the idea of scarcity, right? And about the idea of money being scarce and what mm -hmm. the results of that would be in the economy and I think for those who are into Bitcoin and understand what Bitcoin represents and how valuable Bitcoin actually is, if you now think about uh, living in a Bitcoin standard and, and spending and living in Bitcoin, you become a lot more conscious and thoughtful about what you spend money on. Uh, like, you know, those expensive pair of shoes, for example, which you really don't need. Like if you are buying mm -hmm. those shoes in Bitcoin, you're probably going to think twice before giving up. You, you know, your scarce and valuable Bitcoin to buy these pair of shoes that are going to, you know, waste in, in a year. Like, so you, you start valuing things a lot differently. And I think that ultimately leads to a net positive for society, because as people become a lot more conscious about what they buy, you know, businesses will then be forced to provide real value and more value, because if you don't, you're not going to succeed as a business. So, you know, it's going to weed out a lot of uh, bad actors, bad businesses, 
maybe some fraudulent activity and just kind of like level up society as a whole. So I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that perspective. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the analog that most people understand is, is the marshmallow test, which is basically you give a kid, uh, you tell them, you know, you can have a marshmallow now, or if you wait 15 minutes, you can have two marshmallows and, uh, you know, tells you a lot about, about the, the people who decide to go for the one now, right? They need that immediate gratification. And so, yeah, when you're on a Bitcoin standard, and if you just look at Bitcoin historically, it doesn't really pay to uh, buy things in the present if you can wait to get them in the future. It changes your time preference, right? And so you divide things based off of, um, you know, needs in the presence and wants. And the wants, Bitcoiners, try and push as far into the future as possible as they can, because they understand that over a long period of time, if I can wait five or six years to purchase something, the odds of my Bitcoin being worth less in the future, extremely low. So why not just wait and be able to, you know, to, to get that thing then and, and have it um, be easier to purchase. Um, I, 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 I've been focusing a lot on Bitcoiners and, and Bitcoin culture. And I think there is a double, uh, there's a double-edged uh, sword component to this uh, low time preference stuff. And that is that there are a lot of things in life that we can spend money on that don't necessarily have an ROI and that are just in the greater good um, for other things. So, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners will align themselves as libertarian or sovereign individuals or like fiercely independent and I think sometimes that can put a bit of a blinder on, you know, supporting uh, people in the present that could need it, that can provide something of value in the long run. One of the things, and and again, like I've just been studying so much and talking to all these Bitcoiners and different creators in the, uh, the space is that for a space that is worth hundreds of billions of dollars, um, it is notoriously hard for creators to get support for different content initiatives as opposed to some of the other communities out there like the ethereum heads and these other altcoins you can go into these communities and you know maybe they're making shitty projects in our opinion but for their community they're building like an educational uh, material or a platform or channel and uh, they're not they're not promising returns on you giving them money but they're just saying hey i want to make an educational series about xyz Here's my little Kickstarter. You can support me. You're not going to get a big ROI, but you can say that you helped out in this initiative. They will be able to crowdfund and raise that money magnitudes higher than I've seen the Bitcoin community do it. And I think a part of that is just because we have this really low time preference and we want to see generally a, a return on our Bitcoin if we're going to spend it. But I think it inhibits some people from really funding things that help in the, uh, the long term. It's just hard to quantify the ROI. I think you know, putting money into other content creators, you're not going to get that Bitcoin back, but you help more people understand Bitcoin. And that's what we all want at the end of the day is we want more people to understand and we want to create more mediums to reach different people and speak in our orange, our orange tongues to as wide of an audience as possible. Um, but getting Bitcoiners to step up and actually put the money towards that stuff is hard because it's not directly visible how they can get an ROI on that. That's a good example, right? And not even for content creators, but any, you know, business or funding, I, I can see that being a challenge for in a Bitcoin standard for the reasons you mentioned. And uh, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you next is how how practical is is a society in a Bitcoin standard, um, you know, able to function and grow, you know, with with 
that example you gave, but on like a much broader scale, like, is it, is it practical to live in a Bitcoin standard? And like, what does that look like? I, I think it makes, uh, I think it makes raising capital a lot more challenging and, and we can debate the merits of whether that's a good thing or not. I think obviously like the stats point right out now that there's a ton of like malinvestment, like all the investment going to like web three and all these garbage AI companies, like everybody's just trying to get their bag right now under a Bitcoin standard. When we know that if we just simply do nothing, we're going to have more purchasing power. Um, it's going to take a lot more for you to convince me to part with my Satoshis. Um, the challenge is, is that there are so many businesses today that have models that are not profitable for many, many years. And that doesn't mean that they're bad ideas. It just means that they essentially need to be bootstrapped in order to function. And so some people argue that, well, you know, back in the old days, there weren't really many businesses like that. Like we didn't have businesses that were unprofitable for like 10, 20, 30 years, right? Like the, the food manufacturers, if you just produced any commodity, if you provided a service, you could have a profitable business within one, two years. Now it seems that the, uh, the standard is I'm going to launch a tech company. I have to spend a ton on R and D. I have to borrow a bunch of credit to make this happen. The product will not be ready for two, three years or four years, but I need it to work. Right. And, and we see this across so many companies like Uber to this day, I believe is still not profitable, but everybody uses them, but they still have to, in their eyes, they have to offer this, um, you know, they have to take a, a cut on the bottom line in order to keep the fares competitive. And I think that was the deal with Airbnb for the longest time too, just racking up losses, very uh, unprofitable. Amazon was like that too. These companies have, you know, over time emerged on the other end. But what I really wonder is in a Bitcoin standard, can we have stories like Amazon and Tesla, where they're just deeply unprofitable and just deep in debt uh, for as many years as they are, when you have a monetary system that just has an insane cost burden to repay debt. Does that work? I don't know. Um, but, you know, it, it arguably, it, it could. We've had societies like that before where we've made great, uh, great leaps in technology under a hard monetary standard where the uh, money actually becomes more valuable over time, but we've gotten used to such a, a set way of raising capital, specifically in the tech markets and the biotech markets where you just need to get super entrenched in debt, um, you know, before you can emerge on the other end with profit. Yeah, that's, that's a good point too. Um, you know, on the flip side as well, Eric, I can see more scrutiny when making investments or making oh, investment yeah. decisions could be a good thing, right? Like look at, oh yeah, look at FTX, right? The amount of like capital from the best VC firms in the world, uh, putting money into FTX with clearly no scrutiny. Um, you know, that's just the result of, you know, abundance of money, you know, no oversight, you know, just a debt-based system in, in full action right there. And I, I think the opposite of that could maybe be a better thing. Maybe we can build more Amazons when there's more scrutiny. There's ways to do it, right? It doesn't have to be a debt. Everything doesn't have to revolve around debt. Well, we have to lower our time preference. I think that's just like the main thing here. A lot of the reason that these companies do this is because they need to, they feel like they need to get speed to market out quickly, right? Um, they need to entrench themselves in this debt so they can get their product out quick and they can grow quick. Because it's just one of those things where like, growth builds upon growth you don't want to give up that momentum when you're in a when, when you're in a startup if possible like nobody would like to just say 
we'll get into debt and then we'll just grow at like five, 10% a year, right? People are like, well, if we can get into more debt, but grow at 50, 100% a year, we'll do that because, you know, we can get out of it potentially faster if our product is good. Even the returns, right? Like, you know, investors, private equity, you know, VC, like they're in the last 15 years, like their target returns are like, what, 15, 20%. And I think that's mm-hmm. just the result of, you know, the debasement of money, like you need that type of return to sustain yourself when there's inflation. But when there's not like what's wrong with imagine there's no inflation, what's wrong with like, 4%, 5%, like nothing, I, it's nothing. Right? No, um, right. it's all about real yield at the end. Yeah. yeah. Do you think there will be a, a Bitcoin standard at some point? Like, are you that faithful in Bitcoin being that thing to like, crack this system i look at it from probably like the micro level a little bit i think the biggest hurdle is it needs to work on a very small scale first because we can have bitcoin merchants and people that will take it for x y and z but that is not a bitcoin standard and we can't kid ourselves when we look at el salvador and say oh they're going towards a Bitcoin standard. People there don't want to get paid in it and they don't want to, uh, you know, their wholesalers will not accept it for goods. I think a true Bitcoin standard, and I, I have yet to see it, is a place where you have four or five people in a community and the only monetary medium they use is Bitcoin. No fiat is exchanged. So when my neighbor, uh, let's just say he grows, um, he grows apples and I have a cow, that, uh, that has milk and I have chickens that have eggs. Uh, the only transaction we should be doing is selling those things for Bitcoin. Um, and if I have a friend who's a carpenter, the only thing that he should be accepting is Bitcoin. Those yeah. models don't exist in the, the hardest or the most notable uh, Bitcoin economies. People are using it as a way to uh, just you know get around MasterCard and Visa right now, but we don't have any evidence of a community that really is living on a Bitcoin standard. I think that the the best way to get there when I think about, you know, how would I practically do it is I think that it becomes a generational thing. And I think the easiest way that we can get to that standard is we have to normalize Bitcoin as a unit of account with our children uh, first. I don't have any kids, but if I did have kids right now, uh, I wouldn't be giving them allowance in dollars. I'd give it to them in Bitcoin. And they might think, well, dad, this sucks. Like I can't spend it anywhere. And you just tell them, uh, you know, read the Bitcoin standard <laughs> at, at age five and uh, start orange peeling people around town and kids do it, man. If they're motivated, if they know they're holding a sack of something worth something, they will go out and they will, uh, they will start getting people to accept it or they'll just trade it with their friends. Right. I really think our best outlet of actually getting to a place where Bitcoin is used as a unit of account across everything, not just for, uh, you know, places to accept it or to strike, turn it into USD as soon as they get it in their wallet is you have to get a younger generation that only knows that as a standard or who starts that as a standard. Our generation, we just have so much bias about that. And, you know, we don't consider ourselves that old. You're, you're probably in your 20s, 30s. And um, same with me, right? But Charlie Munger's out there calling it rat poison. He's 99. We're just, we're still, we're still bitter, whether we think so or not. We've read all the Bitcoin books. We're still bitter about it. There are people that um, are coming to this world, children that are coming to this world, who we have the opportunity to start them with a Bitcoin first principle. And those are going to be 
that's going to be the generation that actually uh, has a chance at putting in a Bitcoin standard, not ours. I think that we're just too bitter. We work in this fiat framework. We can't imagine a world with deflation. Um, these things have to get reversed, and it just takes a long, long time to get that done. But it doesn't mean that we can't start now. It just means that you know we have to uh, recognize our limitations in getting our neighbors to do it and uh, just work on creating the education for the next generation to look at it uh, the way that we wish we could look at it. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the the right perspective to look at it. I mean, to, to overturn uh, a system which like, you're just born into and this is all you know, like it takes time, right? It's not going to happen mm-hmm. overnight. And I think that's a good uh, way to look at it. Uh, I was going to ask you about El Salvador. So have you been to El Salvador? Yeah, we did yeah. a whole documentary on it, and that was, wow. was pretty fun, interesting experience. I was actually just down in Guatemala. I'm working on a video there of a Bitcoin circular economy because I think the big hope with the whole the El Salvador conversation is really interesting because you have half the people that say wild success, half the people that say total failure, and then you have some you know pragmatic people in the middle that say ah, it's it's okay, it's going okay. But the big the big thing to me that decides whether it's a success or not is like what do the neighboring countries think, right? Like if Bitcoin has network effects, which we all like to think it does, then other countries that are right next door should look at El Salvador and say, "Hey, let's try it over here." And if that's happening, that to me is the metric of success. So not, yeah. you know, whether everyone's a Bitcoin in El Salvador or not. It's just like do the neighbors want to do it and does it keep spreading? Does it does it yeah. open up a wider net? True. So yeah, we did this thing in um, Guatemala that I'm working on. Hopefully, I'll get it out by the end of the month or early next month. Um, but they've built a really impressive circular economy there. And uh, they've done it without having to implement a, a legal tender law or anything like that. It's just through uh, practicality. And because Guatemala has a really interesting cultural history, I think there is a uh, less of a resistance to take it as a form of currency. Uh, the people there are just like optimistic about things. Interesting. So what, when did you go to El Salvador? Was it recent? It was about three months after the law went to effect. So it was in oh. November, December 21. Okay. So it was still fresh. Um, yeah. So what was, what was your like on boots on the ground experience then? Um, and how do you think it compared to when you went to now? How is it? Um, I think so. There's different prongs of it, right? Number one was that because they made it a legal tender law and one of the clauses in there was that you have to accept it as legal currency, all of the big corporations took it because they looked at that at face value and they said, this is the law. Like if we don't accept Bitcoin at Walmart, McDonald's, Starbucks or whatever, we're technically breaking the law. However, that law hasn't been enforced. I'm not a big proponent of it. I don't think you should force people to use a currency that just makes it fiat, right? Um, But they put the Bitcoin law in in kind of into effect they did it like that, I think, to uh, encourage adoption. And I think it, you know, it did its part. Um, the challenge is, is that basically you have a couple silos of Bitcoin usage in El Salvador. You have these big uh, franchises. They have McDonald's, Pizza Hut, Starbucks, Walmart, Dollarama, et cetera, down there. And then you have small businesses. And to me, it looks like since the small businesses kind of understand that they don't need to accept Bitcoin, they, they really don't. And I think it's probably only gotten worse since 21. I think there was maybe a little bit of fear that like we had to accept Bitcoin back in the day. But as things have gone on, it's just like it's too much of a hassle for most people. And I don't think it's Bitcoin's fault. The big challenge was that um, the government felt the need to create their own on off ramp for Bitcoin so that it would make sense for people and they could use it as a tool for remittances. And so they made this app called Chivo, which just has 
a whole litany of issues with it. And uh, it's just one of those things where like when you lose people's trust early on, uh, they're just not going to get into it. And it's the same thing with like what we deal with. Like people see FTX goes down then they think, you know, Bitcoin's a fraud, right? And people down there, they have Chivo and Chivo goes down. And so they think, oh, the Bitcoin network is glitchy and not reliable, right? And it's just the government doesn't put enough money into distinguishing those two, the centralized party versus the decentralized party uh, for people to really have a good understanding of it. And so basically, they have a good head start there where they have these businesses that accept it. Um, everyone kind of knows what it is, but they're back to square one in the sense that they have to basically start doing these education programs in schools to really teach people about self-custody, running a node, what Bitcoin is, Bitcoin's monetary history and all this stuff. And that's working its way through the system, but it's on a very like small scale versus all of a sudden 8 million people in El Salvador know who Satoshi is and, and know how to run a node and all that stuff. So they're starting kind of from square one. They have the advantage of people can spend it down there. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's great. I think it's still, you know, it's, it's encouraging to see it down there. And again, the metric that I use for success is that what are the neighbors uh, saying? Are the neighbors looking in and saying, hey, this is a cool tool, right? Like it can protect our wealth potentially uh, over the last you know two years. It's kind of been a little rocky on that front. But you know, the big thing with Bitcoin now is the Lightning Network, and that's just been so great in helping people accept payments. And they have all these different wallets now that can do instant conversion to USD. So if you want to just go hands off on the Bitcoin as an asset thing, you can just use the monetary technology of the Lightning Network and just save so much money in fees uh, for credit card processing. Yeah. And so I think that's a really good angle for more nation state adoption. And that's really where it's been going in Guatemala. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pulling for El Salvador to you know to to make it work. What's your what's your yeah. take on um, you know they recently had a I think 800 million dollar bond issued that they were able to pay back. Um, how do you how do you read that? Because a lot of like the mainstream press was like you know totally opposite. They're not going to yeah. be able to pull it off and all this. The the really impressive thing about um, El Salvador and it's uh, it's a video I'm working on too that's just been taking forever is they have a once in a generation leader down there in Nayib Bukele um, you know there's a lot of Bitcoiners that say like oh don't simp for politicians and all this stuff but it's just like you got you got to call them as you see them you know there are very few people that could do what he's done there are very few people who could who can speak as effectively as he can who can clearly organize a team to do what he needs to do down there. Uh, they have just blitzed out the gangs there. They, the number of homicides has just fallen dramatically in what was once the most dangerous country on earth. Yeah. And that has opened up so many more um, areas of revenue for them. Um, they have been working also very strategically with a lot of other uh, countries like China to build out their ports. Um, they're, they're just, they're just, putting so much money into their own economy. And uh, when the, the big thing is security, right? Like when you solve that issue, so much money flows back into the country. People move back. There have been just hundreds and, and probably thousands of people in the last few years that left Guada, uh, or left El Salvador in the, the 90s during their really bloody and gruesome civil war and have now decided, hey, you know, everyone in the Western world up north is is uh you know wearing wigs and and shouting at each other's throats and being all kooky like maybe i should just go home right like things are, are actually looking the better than they have in a very long time there and so so much economic activity ends up flowing back 
they're developing um, just a tremendous amount of energy resilience too. Nayib Bukele has put a ton of money into their energy infrastructure, their geothermal, and that, that story doesn't get told enough. Um, but he has just allocated, uh, he's just done the right things to build their economy up. And so that country is, uh, is really succeeding, I think, a large part in uh, um, just due to him. And I think there is this controversy that he's really managing that country as a CEO. He has this like very singular vision and everyone else just kind of like does what he needs to do. And, you know, we like to think, oh, it's a democracy. We should have bipartisanship and like all this different input. But it's just like we know that there are dangers in concentrating uh, a lot of power in the hands of few, but if you want things to get done fast, and if you want things to get done with a very singular vision, you trust a very limited team, you trust a CEO, right? And so the best way to look at what's going on in El Salvador is to look at it like it's a corporation that's restructuring and turning around in real time. And we might not like to look at that. You know, we don't like to look at governments like uh, corporations, but that governance model uh, is working for them uh, objectively on every level down there because he has the highest approval rating of like any president in the entire world right mm -hmm. now on planet Earth, highest approval rating. And that's uh, those are independent polls. Those are not government-sponsored uh, polls. Yeah, a good friend of mine who just got back from El Salvador and he said this, like, people love him down there. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's it's you know what's fascinating to me is, like, everyone knows who he is in the neighboring countries too. I spoke to people in Mexico. They know who he is. Right. Like who, who knows, who knows who the hell, like the president of like a country of six, eight million That's people true, is yeah. making like, noise for sure. Right? Do, you, do you know who the president of Guatemala is? No. Couldn't even. Do you know the president of Honduras? No, you know him because of Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. Other people know him uh, because of the tourism and surfing and all that stuff. But I mean, he's just, he's a, he's a great marketer and uh, yeah. It, yeah, he's done a really good job in, in getting the word out about El Salvador. And it's, it's, yeah, like, like going back to what you said, like that ultimately is what has helped him um, pay off the bonds. The other thing is that they've restructured their tax, uh, their tax system there. I, I really think so much money is lost in tax revenue every year just because we have super antiquated systems. Like, you know what it's like to file with the CRA and like follow up and do all that stuff. Like, it's a nightmare, right? And like the IRS, apparently, filing taxes in the US is like, way more annoying than it is in Canada. Um, but uh, when you make those systems like very easy and streamlined and you take out all these complications, you actually just generate more revenue. It's pretty simple, exactly. right? Like I don't see why people don't invest in, in making those infrastructures easier to use and therefore just getting people to actually just pay what they need to pay. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. yeah I think El Salvador is a very interesting experiment. I mean, for me, my, my, the way I value Bitcoin has really evolved just the more, you know, you learn and, and, study things and to me one of the most valuable parts of, of bitcoin is just like the the, the freedom element and, and just being mm. totally the the, uh, the sovereignty of it and just having full control um which you know and i think a lot of like people who understand bitcoin kind of share that that that, that value perspective of it and, and the freedom part and you know we're both in canada and we we can see how Freedom is, is one of these things growing up, we're around the same age where it's, you don't really think about, you know, being free and having freedom. Like it just like you live with it, you can kind of do what you want. But I feel like in the last three years, like we see how freedom can be kind of taken from you by, by leaders and government and, 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 you know, little inch by inch. And so I see El Salvador as a place where, you know, just with the mobility of, of the world right now, how easy it is to go from place to place as a, a place where people who appreciate freedom could could potentially, 
you know, start investing in El Salvador and building up that, that, that place in the world where, um, yeah, it just like promotes freedom. So like, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And, and so this is, this is like a really interesting conversation I like to have, um, you know, with people who have like a keen eye on the macro is that the, the big picture story is that birth rates everywhere, basically, even the countries that have high birth rates, everything is still over the long term declining, right? Like Nigeria, birth rates, like five kids per mother or something there. And then in, in Japan, it's like 1.2. South Korea, it's like 0.76 children per women there. So they have like a rapidly a dwindling population. And so this is something that we all have to deal with moving forward is that we're going to have fewer and fewer people on this earth. And, and we're prob probably like estimates show that population is going to peak at around 2150. And then it's just downhill from there. And so if you want to have an economy that keeps growing, uh, you know, you basically need to make sure that the GDP output of each citizen is getting higher and higher and higher. And it becomes an uphill battle when you just have fewer and fewer citizens in the workforce, right? And so story that we've we've all been like talking about now just because in the last hundred years we've just had this unprecedented population growth and, and monetary expansion kind of alongside that and so the question that i think a lot of people are saying is like look if we can't seem to get the birth rate up and it seems like kind of a lost cause like how are we going to get americans to start having more kids or canadians it's not going to happen then we need to have immigrants right we need to have all these immigrants start coming in we got to open our borders and i think that's going to be a big part of the story moving forward but I think what a lot of people underestimate is that a lot of the human capital um, in these countries could potentially leave uh, to places like El Salvador, to places along the equator, to countries that are expanding and are going to make it easier to immigrate into and, uh, you know, the special privileges that come along with that. Now, if you're a Canadian or American, like you really don't want to give up that citizenship because it gives you so much opportunity to travel and everyone likes to travel these days and, and, you know, do things around the world. But for some people, like they will gladly give up Canadian or American citizenship to move to a country with more economic opportunity where they're not being taxed to high heaven to pay for the government's enormous debts. And so I really think that um, the governments think that they're just going to be able to open up the borders and let people immigrate and keep the economy flowing. But I think people are going to, some of the brightest minds around are just going to leave or they're going to host their businesses overseas like they're already doing. And they're going to just relocate their families to these countries that are on the uptick and are able to say, hey, you know, we have zero percent capital gains tax here. You can buy property for cheap. Uh, the weather is consistent all year round. Uh, human beings just naturally like to live on the equator. Um, and these countries are going to have a massive influx of uh, new people there. And they'll deal with their own set of problems. Like usually when that happens, there's, you know, gentrification and, and you know, inflation that comes with that as they bring excess demand. Um, but, you know, places like El Salvador are going to benefit. I think whether they introduce Bitcoin or not, um, just because uh, Nayib Bukele's policy is like lowering um, capital gains tax rates to, to effectively zero there for a lot of immigrants and uh, getting rid of crime just opens it up to like a whole new swath of people. And um I don't know. I don't know what the stats are on it right now. Like obviously like net population in Canada and the US is rising. Like we're not brain draining, but El Salvador knows what it's like to brain drain. They lost about a third of their population in the 90s uh, to America, Canada, Australia. And uh, basically their economy languished for a very, very long time. And now it's kind of on the upswing again because people are coming back into the country. That's really the lifeblood of the economy is like more people. Yeah. So um, 
you know, it's doing well for them. And I think that we in Western countries, we underestimate as we get more draconian with things like CBDCs and as we increase tax rates and as we make it more difficult for businesses to start up here, um, you know, unless they put in measures that prevent people from uh, moving their capital overseas, which they can't really do that easily, um, people are just going to make the decision to move. Right. It's a very tough conversation. Like, like, have you had that conversation with your partner ever? Like, what if we just like moved Always, Canada, yeah, yeah. Canada? Yeah. All the time. <laughs> How does, how does that go for you? Jeremy? I mean, you know, if for us, like I, I work, I've been working remotely from my office here for the past eight years. So, you know, we, we travel a lot I was with kids now in the mix, you know, it, it adds to the equation, but yeah. Um, yeah, no, for us, I mean, if I had to like, if I was a betting man, I say in the next five years, I'd pretty confidently say that uh, I probably won't be in Canada for 12 months in the year. For sure. So, so, so one of the, one of the aspects I looked at is basically like, if we have this declining birth rate, fewer couples are having kids. From my understanding, having kids is kind of what keeps you location locked. Like you don't, I, I think parents traditionally don't like to move their kids around a lot. They like to keep it consistent. You know, if you moved around as a kid, you know how much it sucks changing like, you know, elementary or high schools, uh, you know, mid grade, but you're going to have a lot of people coming in who decide we don't want to have a kid for economic reasons. And making that decision to leave a country and to get a different citizenship becomes a lot easier for them than a traditional family. Oh yeah. So I think that becomes a factor moving forward as we have declining birth rates that will benefit, um, you know, other countries because the people in those countries that can't stand the lack of freedom or other nonsense going on are going to be able to easily move themselves. Right. Yeah. I was going to say that too. Like if, if I didn't have kids, I probably would already be somewhere else to be honest yeah. with you. Uh, but at the same time, having kids, it's like, yes, it does add to the equation, make it more difficult. You want that stability. Uh, but like, you know, I, I don't think that's a reason not to, I think, yeah, it will definitely deter more people from making the move, but you know, there, I don't think that's, that's everything. Yeah. So I know when I was growing up, like I, uh, my parents didn't own a house at all. So we were constantly bouncing around different rentals. I don't know if that's the normal for most people. I don't know what the stat is of like how many times people move as kids, but I probably lived in about like seven or eight different places wow. when I was a kid, just bouncing around rentals. Yeah. And um, we never, we never had that issue because I was an only child. And I imagine like if my parents had more children, they probably would have like pushed to stay put a little bit more, but their financial situation didn't allow them to buy anything. So we were just constantly renting. And, you know, people are in those situations too. People are just bounce around rentals all the time. They don't own things, right? They don't get necessarily attached to the property because they don't have the property rights. So again, that makes it easier for them to just, you know, book off out of the country. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so we're both in Canada, right? Knowing, knowing the issues that exist, like going, coming full circle now, knowing the issues that exist with the monetary system, knowing how unsustainable it is, knowing that it's, it's never worked in history, knowing that CBDCs are likely on the way. What are you doing to like protect yourself, position yourself and your, you know, your family? Oh man, I have a fun story with this and I wish there were more Bitcoiners I could talk to about this. The problem with Bitcoin is, is people really like value their privacy, uh, almost like to a fault, but I've gotten really into just, uh, learning about, you know, just self-sustainability. Um, one of the things I did early on uh, in my Bitcoin journey is mm -hmm. I cashed out and I bought a piece of land on an island called Gambier Island. It's about 40 minutes from Vancouver Harbor by boat, but it's completely off the grid. There's no town or anything there. And if you know Vancouver prices, it's like Toronto. Like if you want to buy a, a lot with a tear me down home, it's like 2 million, right? But 
if you have a boat and some creativity, you can buy land on an island that's essentially as far as like a suburb, um, you know, time-wise. And I got five acres for about $179,000 back wow. in 2018. And so uh, my kind of dream is to build that into um, kind of like a sustainable off-grid home. And so I've just been spending a lot of time learning about, you know, carpentry, um, solar, electrical stuff, uh, agriculture a little bit, um, you know, geology and just, just the cost of building this off-grid home. And, you know, everyone, man, I go on YouTube and I think I should have just like documented all this stuff from the start because there's so many YouTube channels of like off-grid builders that, uh, they just get millions of views and they can actually just pay for everything through their videos. My challenge is, is like, I'm, I'm like a little bit retarded. So everything that I've built out there kind of looks like ass <laughs> and I'm, I'm still working through it. I, I see all these people who are like, Oh yeah, I don't have any building experience. Check out this like van I built. And it's just like, it's like beautiful inside. And I'm like, how do, how do people like, how are people so good at this? Yeah, yeah. So anyways, my, my whole journey has been like, I'm trying to learn how to, to, to be self-sustainable and to like, you know, be able to build my own home and, in that process, you spend a lot of time learning these things, but you can save so much money. Like if you build your own home or if you get friends to do it, you can save hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can put that money into building a bigger place or a more complex place or use more sound materials. Um, and, uh, you know, the goal is to build kind of this like off grid sort of retreat for myself and then hopefully open it up and maybe have other retreats and Bitcoiners there. And, uh, just build something that's sustainable, that's not landlocked, that doesn't have all the uh, the issues with zoning and crap that we do in the city out there. And I've been like trying to find other Bitcoiners that are interested in that uh, to like, you know, see what their journey is. And I just find like a lot of people like to stay anonymous on Twitter. So they'll be like, oh, yeah, cool job in your cabin. I'm building something. And I'll like write them and they'll be like. Sounds good, but like I know they don't want to talk because they don't want to like give away yeah. like their location or anything I like know. that. I'm like, oh. that that's awesome. So you bought that in 2018. Yeah. Um, have you done anything with it since? Like, are you starting to? Yeah, build and yeah. I have. Um, I have. Okay, so I can run you through all the litany of like mistakes I made doing this. So I didn't know how to build anything. So I was like, I'll just get some like, I'll just get some sheds, and I'll just like pimp out a couple sheds because you can just buy a shed for like ten. 15,000 bucks. And so basically like I bought one cabin in 2019 or 2020 and it's just like, you know, it's just a shell. And so I was like, well, I'll just use this as like a starting ground. Like I'll do, you know, laminate floor, I'll put in a fireplace, I'll do the insulation and, uh, I'll do the plywood and like, man, I've just blown thousands of dollars, like doing shit incorrectly and, and, you know, blowing it on other stuff that just went bad. And it's just like, it's a huge learning process, but at the same time, like I, I, I wish I was better with my money on that stuff, but man, it's been so fun. It's been such a learning experience doing all that and like, you know, using power tools and figuring out how to like wire solar. Are you a handy person? Are you good with your hands and building and? Uh, no, not at all. No, don't like, like if you asked me to build you something, I'd be like, no, I no, no, yeah, the re I'm the same. Like I'm not, not <laughs> I am the reason why like construction workers are in business. Like I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, it's like, I'm torn because I would, I would like, I have the money to, to hand it off to someone else. But the challenge with that Island is basically like, it's not cost efficient to do day trips out there because you'll have to pay for a ferry like a little water taxi and it's like $60, $70 round trip. So if I want to have a couple workers out there, they're going to go in and out every single day. And the ferries don't really like, you can't just pick whatever hours they have like eight hour windows to work. So basically I was forced to learn to do some of this stuff myself and then like camp out there as I, I built this whole place up. 
Um, so it's, it's going pretty well. Like it was a very long process because it was sort of like a weekend thing. And then also it's just a pain in the ass in the winter out there. It's just pissing rain here in Vancouver all the time. And so you don't want to be, you don't want to be like, uh, you, you don't want to be like skill sawing stuff in the rain because your wood contracts and expands and yeah. just, it's kind of messy. So, um, you know, there's that. Um, but at the same time, like I wouldn't trade it for anything. That experience, second of learning and teaching people about Bitcoin has been like the biggest joy in my life because when you do do something right, you feel like such an unparalleled sense of accomplishment. Like when you build something, when you, um, when you furnish something correctly, like it just, when something looks good, it looks good. And you just, it just feels so, uh, so much, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I just feel a lot of gratitude, I yeah, think, for that whole yeah. thing out there. And that plot of land I got too, it's it's really cool. Like it's completely south facing, but it's like it's it's on like a mountain, so I got an ocean view, and then it's like a you know, eight minute walk to the beach. Um and uh, you know, in the summers when it's not, you know, pissing rain, uh it's great for solar. And so I actually got my hands on a uh Bitcoin uh Bitmain Ant Miner S9. And so the hope is that in the spring and fall, instead of like running a fireplace all the time if i have like a decent amount of solar i can just heat the place with the miner a little nice. bit and so you know i'm getting to learn the whole ability to uh, i guess be like sovereign out there and learning how to like craft things has gotten me a little bit deeper into learning about mining as well because it's just like well if i can you know if i can build like a cabin i can learn how to run a miner and so yeah all this all this stuff just like plays together really well and so that to me is my hedge for all the insanity going on nice. like uh, in our country. That's because amazing. As soon as, <laughs> as soon as I hear nonsense about Trudeau and all this other, all these other stupid laws, I, I scream a little bit on Twitter and then I just uh, go to the island, turn my phone off for like a few days Love and uh, just get to work. And it's, it. it's the best way to unwind. I, I think we need to get back to that as Bitcoiners. I think it's really hard to be a Bitcoiner and like live in the city your whole life. Or only live in the city because I think that we just we brush up against that sovereign individual thesis because we just see everyone else acting like they're running around like chickens without their heads off, not realizing that like a lot of people don't have to live that way and they don't live that way. And, and the best people to connect to as Bitcoiners are people who are self sovereign. And I found that in my journey, orange pilling people, the people who get it quicker are the people who don't live in cities and who are independent. If you try and pitch Bitcoin to a communist, they're just not, there's so many principles you have to work through in order to, to explain it to them versus people who are already sovereign and individual and understand that this is just a technology that ultimately promotes freedom, right? Yeah, totally. So, you know, totally. Sometimes you just have to go to people where they are, right? Love it. So did you, you bought uh, a plot of land on the island or you bought the island? No, I bought a plot of land oh, on okay. the island. Although I, I like will casually refer to it as like my island. I got to yeah. stop doing it, but no, it's not my island. Okay. Uh, okay. It's a, yeah, it's not a big island. It's about, I think the whole island is 16,000 acres and I have five. Okay, nice. So how, how often do you go back and, and work on it? I'm there a lot in the summer. It's like usually the winters I'm not there because pipes freeze. And so basically like you have to have water running all the time. Also solar is just awful in the winter. Uh, I have to get my propane generator set up, but those are, that's one of those things where like you need to hire like a gas technician or else you're breaking the law sort of nonsense. Um, so it's, I, I don't go out there much in the winter, but you know, come May to August, I'm just out there a bunch, which is now, uh, 
heading towards a fault because I like going to these Bitcoin conferences as of late and like all of the good ones are in the summer and like I just hate leaving here in the summer. Like Vancouver is the best place to be in the summer. I don't know if you feel that way about like Toronto, but like, yeah, yeah. I just love it here in the yeah. summer. It gets a little too hot sometimes in August, but I've never the been summer to weather Vancouver. Fantastic here. Oh, no, no, never been. avoid it. Avoid it like nine months out of the year. But like, uh, you know, Joel or June to September, just awesome place to be. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. Julian, appreciate the time. I'm going to be mindful of your time here. If someone wanted to learn more, like I said, you're putting out some incredible content um, on Thanks, social man. media and you're doing amazing work. And I just want to like commend you on that. So, so where, where can people find you online? If you want to watch me uh, stumble my way through monetary history and macroeconomics, you can uh, find me on Twitter YouTube, TikTok, all the platforms as Kinetic Finance. Uh, it'll be whatever page is just putting out videos a bunch. But I do 60-second shorts that you can send to your mom or dad or your your grandma. Then, you know, maybe they'll learn something. I do live streams where I cover kind of the news of the week. I'm getting into hopefully doing a format a little bit like yourself where I'm talking to more people from different perspectives around the world about, uh, you know, Bitcoin and content creation. And of course, I'm, I'm moving towards doing more documentary vice-like content. And so we have a couple of those videos coming out soon too. But the, uh, the vision is to create a place where people can learn about Bitcoin and monetary concepts in a much more dynamic and different way than what is typically presented uh, through like whiteboard formats and stuff like that online. Yeah, well, it's, it's incredibly important topics and information that more and more people need to be aware of. So um, yep. great job. I'm really glad we were able to connect. Uh, appreciate yeah, it. Man. We'll definitely stay in awesome. touch and uh, absolutely take care. We'll do it again sometime, I'm sure. You too. Thanks for having me on, Costa. I really appreciate it. All right. All the best. And thanks everyone for watching. <laughs>